Welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show, and thank you for joining me this Sunday. If you recall, back in March, um, in the United States, uh, the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic was really getting really, really bad. The first states to be hit by the coronavirus were Washington State and California. Then the coronavirus pandemic hit New York. On March 22nd, New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo called for the Army Corps to help build temporary hospitals because the hospitals there were getting full in that state. Joel, Joel Rose, uh, he wrote at NPR at the time, quote, Facing a rapid increase in the number of confirmed coronavirus cases, Governor Andrew Cuomo says New York State is ready for the Army Corps of Engineers to start building temporary hospitals in the state immediately. Cuomo also argued, the, you, excuse me, also urged the federal government to nationalize the effort to acquire protective medical supplies, including masks, gowns, and gloves that are in short supply. He says masks that used to cost 85 cents are now priced at 7% as states are forced to bid against each other for limited supplies, end quote. So that is what was transpiring back then. I mean, at that point in time in New York, New York had reached 100 deaths and coronavirus cases were continuing to rise. On March 30th, there was reporting from the New York Post that trucks were being filled with bodies a man and a medical worker had recorded videos of that scene. Um, here was reporting from the New York Post at the time. Quote, the coronavirus pandemic has slammed New York City so hard that healthcare workers are using forklifts to load dead bodies into refrigerated trucks, according to a viral video. The five minute and 32 second clip posted to you excuse me, posted to YouTube, shows medical officials helping to load the corpses in body bags into the medical mobile morgue outside Brooklyn Hospital Center in Fort Greene. According to a man shooting the clip um, who said, excuse me, who did not identify himself, quote, this is for real. This is Brooklyn. A man filming the terrifying event can be heard saying in the video, quote, they are putting the bodies in the 18 wheeler. This is no joke. This is Brooklyn Hospital. Uh, the man goes then goes on to say, quote, stay inside, essentially saying that this virus is serious. He ends off by saying, quote, this may make you want to take this serious, end quote. I remember when that public reporting broke back in March, it was just gut-wrenching. It was very, very unsettling. On April 1st, a video was posted on the Now This News YouTube channel, and it was a nurse crying and explaining why she quit her job over the pandemic. I want you to take a listen to what she said. Here's that clip. I quit my job today. I went into work, and I was assigned to a COVID patient on an ICU unit that has been converted to a designated COVID unit. None of the nurses are wearing masks, not even surgical masks in the hallways when they're giving report to each other. I had my own N95 mask. I told my manager, I understand we're short on supplies, but let me protect myself. Let me feel safe. I have family that I have to come home to and the way things are looking, this isn't going to get any better. America is not prepared and nurses are not being protected. Once again, a nurse there essentially recording that video. Um, she was crying um, and explaining why she resigned in order to protect herself and her family from transmission of COVID-19. At that time, President Donald Trump had refused to fully invoke the Defense Production Act, which would have been very, very beneficial, especially at that time. 
The Defense Production Act allows the President of the United States to direct private companies to prioritize orders from the federal government. Nevertheless, the President also has the power to, quote, allocate materials, service, and facilities, end quote, for nation defense purposes and take action to prevent hoarding of critical supplies. In this case, supplies that nurses and doctors desperately needed back then. My source for that reporting was CFR.org. Then, in April, there was an exponential increase in coronavirus cases in New York, and people were continuing to die at record rates, which created a problem. Funeral homes were overwhelmed, and so were people, so were hospitals, so were doctors and nurses. We saw these, these, this culminated thing on, on, the, on the internet of these, of these video vlogs, of these videos, diaries online by doctors and nurses essentially explaining their days. And it was broadcasted on television. At this point, at this point in the United States, the coronavirus had become more prevalent. And New York was the epicenter of this disease. In the midst of all of that chaos and all of that loss and all that heartbreak, the president of the United States then proceeded to continuing and persistently politicizing the coronavirus pandemic even further. Even after February when he called it, quote, a democratic hoax. President Trump then fought uh, with Democratic governors over sending ventilators and medical aid to, excuse me, to their states, which they desperately needed at the time, especially New York, which is grappling with this almost unfathomable record of coronavirus cases and death rates. The president said that he would only do that if they treated him, quote, nicely and if they adulated his response to the current coronavirus pandemic. While people are dying, that's what the president of the United States is doing. He is more concerned about loyalty and being treated with adulation. Even though at that point in the pandemic, the president refused to refuse to fully invoke the Defense Production Act, which would have provided PPE to those nurses who needed it at the time. Those nurses and doctors who were saving, who were persistently and valiantly working in these hospitals to try to save as much COVID patients as they could. Also in April, we learned that the President of the United States had been briefed on a potential pandemic back in January. I did a special report on it at the time. In early May, Governor Andrew Cuomo responded to the President's politicization of the coronavirus by saying the coronavirus is not a, quote, blue state issue, end quote. Then on May 27th, after the constant politicization of the coronavirus pandemic, the United States reached an unfathomable death toll. 100,000 Americans dead. According to CNN, the president told approximately seven lies a day about the coronavirus from June 8th to July 5th. All of those lies could have been not told. We could have saved hundreds of thousands of Americans. We could have saved thousands of Americans, if not hundreds of thousands. According to CNN, excuse me, yes, I just reported that. Um, in July, the president, the president's constant attacks on the CDC came over reopening schools. By late July, the plan had come to fruition. And this was one of the CDC, this is on the CDC's website. The CDC wrote, this is on the CDC's website at the time, quote, it is critical for schools to open as safely and quickly as possible for in-person learning. Yeah, I'm sure they completely wrote that. We later found out that the Trump administration actually had written that on their had written that and quietly put it in the CDC's website. They just put a CDC logo on it. 
In August, I reported on the continuing politicization, not only of the CDC, but of the coronavirus pandemic as well. I reported that last week, excuse me, last week it was reported from the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times actually broke some bombshell news uh, when this posted on their website, quote, CDC testing guidance was published against sci scientists' objections. End quote. Now, for context here, in late August, we were all mystified when the CDC said that asymptomatic people shouldn't get tested for the virus. We were like, what? Asymptomatic people can spread the virus. We actually saw that happen during meat processing plants when there were major coronavirus outbreaks there. Asymptomatic can, excuse me, asymptomatic people can spread the virus. When the CDC put out that information, that was essentially contradicting what they had, uh, essentially, that was contradicting what they had recommended earlier, what they had said earlier about asymptomatic people being able to transmit the virus without knowing it. According to the New York Times, who broke that bombshell article back on September 17th, which is last week, quote, a heavily criticized recommendation from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention last month about who should be tested for the coronavirus was not written by CDC scientists and was posted to the agency's website despite their serious objections, according to several people familiar with the matter, as well as internal documents obtained by the New York Times. The guidance said it was not necessary to test people without symptoms of COVID-19, even if they had been exposed to the virus. It came at a time when public health experts were pushing for more testing rather than less. And administration officials told the Times that the document was a CDC product and had been revised with input from the agency's director, Dr. Robert Redfield. Then goes on to write, quote, but officials told the Times this week that the Department of Health and Human Services did the rewriting and then, quote, dropped it into the CDC's public website, flouting the agency's strict scientific review process. That quote, and then here's one person saying, quote, that was a doc that came from the top down from the HHS and the task force, said a federal official with knowledge of the matter, referring to the White House task force on the coronavirus, quote, that policy does not reflect what many people at the CDC feel should be the policy. The article then goes on to say, quote, similarly, a, a document arguing for the importance of reopening schools was also dropped into the CDC's website by the Department of Health and Human Services in July and is sharply out of step with what the CDC's usual neutral and scientific tone, the officials said. The information comes more days after revelations that political appointees at HHS meddled with the CDC's vaunted weekly reports on scientific research, quote, this is from Dr. Richard Besser. He's the, a former CDC director. Quote, the idea that someone at, at HHS would write guidelines and have it posted under the CDC banner is absolutely chilling. End quote. So that was breaking news from the New York Times. Also, according to that article, the CDC director has been criticized by employees. According to the Times, quote, a, he has been criticized by his employees. Uh, the Times puts it like this, as a, quote, weak and ineffective leader who is unstable to protect the agency from the administration meddling in its science, from the administration meddling in its science for, from the public's increasing, mis excuse me, mistrust in the agency, end quote. One person saying there, quote, there was political pressure on the CDC in the past, but I think this is just unprecedented. End quote. Earlier this week, top health officials uh, testified to Congress, essentially saying that we will not return to normal soon. 
On Friday this week, the CDC finally reversed their testing guidelines, now encouraging people to get tested even if they are asymptomatic, uh, which has already just caused damage. However, the, as I said, the damage is done. Former CDC Director Richard Bester saying, quote, when you lose trust, it's really hard to regain it. Last week on Thursday, I, a nine-year-old boy uh, who's been battling the coronavirus for six months said this, quote, kids, I'm sorry to say this, but it's a big deal. It will hurt. You've just got to face the truth sometimes. You're not okay. He then goes on to say, he said he felt like he has been, quote, smashed into a wall end quote, uh, which is something that is similar to what lots of other people have saying. Another person saying that they felt like a, a, they've been hit by a train because of the symptoms of the coronavirus and just having such a toll on them as a human being, as an individual. Last week on Friday, the state of Virginia lost its first child to the coronavirus. Also on Friday, a former member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force endorsed Democratic nominee Joe Biden. Um, I want you to take a listen to what she said. Here is the endorsement. This is from the Republican Voters Against Trump YouTube channel. Here is what she said when she endorsed um, former when she endorsed Democratic nominee Joe Biden. Take a listen. I'm Olivia Troy. I was Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Pence and served as Vice President Pence's lead staff member on the COVID-19 response. You know, I've been on the COVID task force from day one. I mean, the virus was very unpredictable at the beginning. There were a lot of unknowns, but towards the middle of February, we knew it wasn't a matter of if COVID would become a big pandemic here in the United States, it was a matter of one. But the president didn't want to hear that because his biggest concern was that we were in election year and how is this going to affect what he considered to be his record of success. It was shocking to see the president saying that the virus was a hoax, saying that everything's okay when we know that it's not. The truth is he doesn't actually care about anyone else but himself. He made a statement once that was very striking. I never forgot it because it pretty much defined who he was. When we were in a task force meeting, the president said, maybe this COVID thing is a good thing. I don't like shaking hands with people. I don't have to shake hands with these disgusting people. Those disgusting people are the same people that he claims to care about. These are the people still going to his rallies today who have complete faith in who he is. If the president had taken this virus seriously, or if he had actually made an effort to tell how serious it was, he would have slowed the virus spread, he would have saved lives. It was the opportunity in honor of a lifetime to be able to serve in the White House. I put my heart and soul into this role every single day. But at some point, I would come home at night, I would look myself in the mirror and say, are you really making a difference? Does it matter? Because no matter how hard you work and what you do, the president is gonna do something that is detrimental to keeping an American safe, which is why you signed up for this role. It was awful. It was, it was terrifying. I have been a Republican for my entire life. I am a McCain Republican, I am a Bush Republican, and I am voting for Joe Biden because I truly believe we are at a, a time of constitutional crisis. At this point, it's country over party. Once again, that was Olivia Choi, a former White House staffer for Mike Pence and a former member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Uh, that whole video is just unsettling. Uh, but this is our president. This is an important time in American history. This is a, a point where we are dealing and we are grappling with a global pandemic that has already killed more than 200,000 Americans here in the United States. 
yet we still do not have any national leadership? Yesterday, we reached 200,000 deaths from the coronavirus pandemic. Another grim, solemn milestone. Actually, I have sitting right beside me as I'm recording this podcast is uh, the newspaper from my home state here in South Carolina. Quote, a solemn milestone. U.S. death toll passes corona, excuse me, U.S. death toll from coronavirus surges past 100,000. I remember when that news broke and feeling very, very unsettled. And it was just almost unbelievable at the time. Like we reached 100,000 Americans dead from the pandemic and other countries were getting their outbreaks under control. And we have, we had just hit an astronomical number. Now here we are again, 100,000 lives later. And the president of the United States is continuing to politicize this disease. He's continuing to downplay this disease. Uh, The president instead is, he did not say anything yesterday about the unfathomable death mark that we reached. Instead, he was more concerned about filling in Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. We're going to have more reporting on that later on. But yesterday, we did reach 200,000 Americans. And this news story broke at the New York Times. Uh, This is reporting from the New York Times. It was absolutely astonishing. And I, I cannot believe that this is still happening. Quote, In power grab, Health Secretary Azar asserts authority over FDA. Here's a sub-headline, quote, Experts said the memo would make it more difficult for the FDA to issue new rules, but it's unclear how it would affect the vetting of coronavirus vaccines, end quote. The article then goes on from the New York Times, quote, In a stunning declaration of authority, a secretary, a secretary Alex Azar of the, Secre- of the House and Human Services, excuse me, of the Health and Human Services this week, barred the nation's health agencies, including the Food and Drug Administration, from signing any new rules regarding the nation's foods, medicines, medical devices, and other and other products, including vaccines. Dr. Mark McKellen, who formerly headed the FDA and now runs Duke University's Health Policy Center, praised the agency's work on vaccine development, but said the policy was ill-timed. Article then goes on to say, quote, We're in the midst of a pandemic when trust in the and public health agency is needed more than ever. So I'm not sure what is to be gained with a management change with respect to the FDA when they are doing such critical work. One doctor saying, quote, Dr. Peter Lurie, president of the Centers for Science and the Public Interest and a former associate commissioner of the FDA, called the new policy, quote, a power grab, end quote. I mean, this is still happening. More than 200,000 of our fellow Americans, of our fellow neighbors, of our fellow teachers, of our fellow former classmates are dead. And the effort to modify scientific information for political gain is still taking place. I mean, we are trying to suppress the coronavirus, not not let cases continue to rise exponentially. Yesterday, German Lopez, a, a Vox.com writer, uh, he's a reporter for Vox.com, um, and he writes, quote, excuse me, he, wrote, he reported that the number of people getting tested for the coronavirus in the United States has dropped. Here's that reporting. Quote, as of September 17th, the average daily tests were about 730,000, down from an average of 780,000 in early September and 830,000 in late July, according to the COVID tracking project. Meanwhile, the percentage of tests coming back positive, which is used to 
gag testing capacity has remained around 5% at times above the threshold of 5, excuse me, yes, of of 5% that experts generally recommend and exceeding that the 3% threshold that some have called for. Only in the past few days have test numbers begun climbing up, reaching a new high of more than 1 million tests on September 19th due to an increase in states reporting of antigen test. The article then goes on to say, quote, Quote, every time we make progress in terms of containing the pandemic, we take our foot off the brakes, says Thomas Tai, a health policy expert at Harvard at Harvard. Quote, what we really should be doing is to step on the brakes harder and truly suppress the pandemic. As a country, we've seen, we, we seem content with half measures. So we end up in this situation where we never really suppress community transmission. End quote. If the U.S., and then the article goes on to say, quote, if the U.S. had the same death rate as, as say, Canada, which has only 115,000 or more, excuse me, which only had, which their death rate is only at 115,000, more Americans would likely be alive today. Quote, now experts are worried that the fall and winter could pose big threats. Schools are reopening, already leading to outbreaks in universities in K-12 settings. In, cold, in colder areas, it will become much harder to gather outside where the virus has a harder time spreading. Uh, families are bound to gather for the holidays from Thanksgiving to New Year's, excuse me, to New Year's Day. Another flu season is coming, which could strain healthcare systems when they might be dealing with the surge in COVID-19 cases. End quote. I also should add that we are expecting a second wave very soon. In terms of understanding what's really going on here, it does it does make sense why the number of people being tested in the United States has dropped. That's because there's a new, ludicrous, inexplicable, oh my gosh, why would they think of this national strategy called herd immunity? The president of the United States, President Donald Trump, and his administration have been pursuing this. Um, they have sort of been inspired by a Fox News doctor, Dr. Atlas. Um, a, a, excuse me, a doctor that regularly appears on Fox News providing misinformation about the coronavirus pandemic. Essentially, the president and his administration have been pursuing it for this, and it is dangerous. MedPageToday.com writes, quote, given its transmissibility, the World Health Organization estimates that 65 to 75 percent of a population would need to be immune to the virus before it would burn itself out, meaning that much of us would need to be affected by, excuse me, would need to be infected with the coronavirus in order for for this herd immunity a thing to work. Then it goes on, quote, though in some recent reports, experts have argued that the number may be closer to 40 or 50 percent. However, medpagetoday.com goes on to write, quote, using the World Health Organization and CDC, that's about 65 percent, which means 213 million people in the United States would need to be infected to achieve herd immunity, leaving more than 1 million Americans dead. We do not fully have, we, full, we do not fully know how the death toll could affect, how the, how the death toll, how high the death toll could get. But herd immunity is the Trump administration's new strategy. Last week on Thursday, when the Trump administration and the president of the United States uh, sort of admitted that herd immunity was the new national strategy in an ABC News town hall, 
with George Stephanopoulos, the Lincoln Project released this ad uh, reciting this is the president of the United States with the link. Uh, this is the Lincoln Project releasing their new ad, essentially uh, what the president of the United States said back in April and what he's trying to pursue right now. The Trump plan. After months of lies and empty promises, he's told us the terrifying truth. His herd immunity plan is to infect seven out of 10 Americans with COVID. The Trump plan will kill at least 3 million people. In April, he admitted a herd immunity plan was deadly. And if we did follow that approach, I think we might have 2 million people dead. This week, he admitted it's his real plan. With time, it goes many away. deaths. And you'll develop, you'll develop herd, like a herd mentality. It's going to be, it's going to be herd developed and that's going to happen. Say goodbye to your parents, your neighbors, your friends, because the Trump plan will kill millions in the next four years. People you love, people you care about, maybe even you. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. This is what they are aiming for. This is the new national strategy for millions of Americans to be infected and millions of Americans to die. This is absolutely ludicrous. It is absolutely insane. It's unfathomable, but this is what they are aiming for. Mil millions of Americans dead and millions of Americans infected because that's, that's what they think. That's the, that's the best we can do. In their mind, that is the best we can do to get this outbreak under control. Dr. Anna Stratus, she worked in New York during the worst of the coronavirus pandemic, and she's going to join me next. I will tell you that is an interview that you are not going to want to miss. That is up ahead. Stay with us. Joining me now for the interview is Dr. Anna Stratus. Dr. Stratus, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Jeremiah. I'm very excited. My first question is, you were in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, when the coronavirus pandemic came. Uh, Brooklyn was not only Brooklyn, but New York was one of the places where the coronavirus hit the hardest. What were mm -hmm. you feeling at the time and how, what, how have you learned from that experience? Oh, awesome question. So um, me and my husband actually live in upper Manhattan. And so when things were really going down and then there were calls for doctors and healthcare providers to volunteer, I said, okay, yeah. So I signed up for the city, you know, uh, medical corps volunteer program, and I was matched to a hospital in Brooklyn to volunteer. And I, I was there for the month of April. Um, so at that time, because I had actually left my medical job in December, so I was, you know, launching a, another business and so forth. But when this came along, I said, this is what I trained to do. I got to get in there. Mm -hmm. And I think a whole bunch of us were saying, There's, this, is, this is the time to be right in the thick of it in the front lines. So it, it would, there was no other choice but to be in the hospital. And it was terrifying, <laughs> to be honest. It was terrifying, yeah. Yes. Um, I, I just think back to those days and seeing on the news the, the flow of patients coming into the ICU and in the emergency room. Was that in a way sort of traumatic? And has that changed you as a person? It's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I think that anybody who was there would have had to have just been on autopilot because what we saw was out, out of this world unbelievable. It was, it was horrific. Mm -hmm. Has it changed me? Um, I, oh my gosh. You know, it's funny, like, you know, have you still unpacked it? I'm not quite sure. But to see hundreds of people flowing to the emergency department, crowding down the aisles and then dying, like, mm -hmm 
dying, dead bodies, clear them away. We've got another body, you know, people talking to me, having conversations and then dead within hours. Um, it was, it was out of this world. It was out of this world. Yeah. How are you feeling right now knowing that uh, we as a nation have just reached 200,000 deaths? Yeah. Um, I, I just, it's, it's unbelievable from what I saw. From, from what I saw, I'm just astonished at how we dropped the ball in such a phenomenal way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, and I get it. You know, a lot of the southern states, they didn't see what we saw in New York. And so I'm sure they kind of thought, well, this isn't real. You know, we're all putting our lives on hold. It's not real. And I think a lot of, and then of course, there's all this confusion and government, you know, mixed messages, but it's human nature, but it's also astonishing that we, that we fumble the ball mm-hmm. and 200,000 people are dead. Mm-hmm. We are uh, now approaching the fall and the winter. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain how this, the, now approaching the fall and the winter and flu season, can you explain how that's going to affect people, especially during the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, yeah. So when we move back inside again, we're going to be in close quarters and we know that coronavirus, our respiratory droplets, they, uh, we, we exchanged... We, that is the dangerous uh, thing for, for the coronavirus transmission. We mm-hmm. were l- relatively lucky in the summer because when we're allowed to be outside, that actually slows transmission. So the second we're inside, the second we're crowded, particularly for folks who have overcrowded housing anyways. So of course, minorities and folks who are already downtrodden, and mm-hmm. they're going to be again, victims of another wave. And then we've got the flu virus coming in. Um, so it's, it's just a recipe for disaster again. And to think that the we're still cresting with our cases, and then winter, second it's not even the second wave yet. So it's terrifying yeah. as a medical professional. Um, as a medical professional, as you stated, what do you make of the the political pressure on the CDC? I mean, last month we saw reports that the CDC was being pressured to change their guidance on testing. Uh, back in July, the CDC was being pressured to sort of be more rosy and optimistic about sending kids back to mm-hmm. school. How do you feel that has affected the way people are viewing this pandemic? And do you think people are losing sort of losing trust in the CDC? Oh, yeah. There's no compass anymore. There's no evidence-based public health compass. Now, the the CDC does incredible work. And I have a good friend who actually works for the CDC. and, Mm -hmm. And actually, he posted recently how a recent report from the CDC actually surpassed the CDC officials, and it went through politicians. And so untruths and poor writing and, and really misleading stuff was published in a CDC document. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's dangerous. People have an eroded sense of um, trust in science, um, and they're listening to uh, snake charmers. I mean, it's it just, it's so, it's so horrendous and horrible. The CDC is, is you know, I'm a Canadian and I, the CDC is a, is a world respected body for public health and infectious disease evidence-based uh, data. We are seeing lots of new coronavirus outbreaks in schools um, all over the country. Do you think that we have reopened schools too soon? And do you think that we will begin to see a catastrophic death toll from this? Mm. I, I think that's the magic question, and I, I have no idea. I'll, I'll tell you, where I live in, in Upper Manhattan, I live right next to a school, and um, the kids who live in my building, who are um, Dominican families, 
they have not been learning since March because they don't have access to the internet. Um, their families are already struggling to work a couple of jobs and so forth. So I know they're not learning. So there's one very large group of kids who have not had the privilege of learning through this pandemic. So the more we delay opening schools, they will suffer in their progress in life. But then on the flip side, then we have people crowding into schools and then the potential to um, you know, push transmission. Here, here's what I think the shame is. Other countries like Canada have been able to open up schools because they, they kept case rates low. So the mm -hmm. fact that everybody has been having a big party all summer, that case rates are so huge, it means that they couldn't drop the case rates in time for school. So if I can flip it on its head, it's that there was, there was not enough regard for public education to try to keep coronaviruses low so that by the time September comes along, we can have a safe reentry. And so the US is falling behind many others, you know, in Europe, they've opened up schools successfully because across communities, they've kept the case rates low. Mm -hmm. It was just a couple weeks ago, uh, the new, excuse me, the Washington Post reported as Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward, um, he broke the news with the tapes that the president of the United States uh, knew that the coronavirus pandemic was very serious, and mm -hmm. he continued to downplay it. As a doctor who actually worked in New York during the worst of the pandemic, mm -hmm. how did that make you feel when you received that news? Oh, it felt like we were putting our lives on the line and also swimming upstream in public opinion. So it was like the, the commander in chief of this country didn't care what we were doing. Mm. I, I felt that he didn't care about our patients dying. Um, he, his downplaying is, is dangerous, disrespectful, uh, and, and it, it hurt me and all of us in a very, very deep place. And it's unforgivable and history uh, will tell the tale of this, uh, uh, the tragic consequences. Yes. Um, I just remember it was just a couple, actually back in May, uh, when the United States reached 100,000 deaths. Mm -hmm. um, that was just unfathomable. Then the, then the president announced that we are getting ready to pull out of the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. uh, political pressure was continuing on the CDC and on the, the, the FDA. Is there a sort of, is there a place that Americans can go to for reliable information if they feel that the CDC is not, if they feel mm. that the CD, they cannot trust the CDC? Is there sort of hmm. a place that they can go for good scientific-based fact information? Mm. Oh my gosh. You, isn't that funny? I, I think um, the way you described it makes me think the whole world order has just collapsed because if we can't trust the CDC and we can't trust the WHO, then, you know, I can say, well, you know, look at Government of Canada guidelines because they're pretty good and pretty stable, but um, we've reached a ridiculous situation in our world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I find now with the ex exception of a recent report out by the CDC that was, that was out, you know, blatant mis mistruths because it surpassed officials and went through with the politicians instead, you know, by and large, um, the, the information is fairly reliable, but I agree with what you're saying is that this fake news and false, um, where do people turn? Mm -hmm. I think that that is the, the critical question. I, our, our trusted sources have fallen. Uh, yes. Not that they've fallen. The people are still there. The experts are still there. Um, but the fake news is spreading faster than the real news. And our, our compasses now have, um, don't work. Um, 
It was reported, I believe, just last week that the CDC has now reversed its testing guidelines for people without COVID-19 symptoms. Um, reportedly, someone said that now it's too late because people are sort of losing trust in the CDC mm. and restrictions and things may have already have happened. Um, also, it was reported that a nine-year-old boy who's been battling coronavirus for six months uh, says that this is a big deal. Hmm. People who still think that this is a joke, is there a message that you would like to give them? Hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I just wish I could download what I saw in the hands of people that I held where they had no family around them. They were dying and they died alone um, in the thousands in New York City alone. Um, I think the message is that this is a time in history where we are called to be together and to make some sacrifices for the greater good and to protect our most vulnerable. And if we don't step up now, then our humanity is under threat and it's a breakdown of our uh, civil order. Uh, the president uh, just last week, he announced this new national strategy. Um, he's now pushing for it. It's called herd immunity. Mm. Uh, basically, what the president of the United States is pushing for is that about 65% of the population get infected, which would just be an astronomical death toll. Mm -hmm. I mean, the United States mm -hmm. would uh, be about more than about 1 million dead. Mm -hmm. In 1918, uh, President Woodrow Wilson, he was the president at the time, he never publicly addressed the Spanish flu at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, 675,000 Americans ended up dying. Mm -hmm. What the president is pushing for here, do you think that that is more dangerous? And is there an effective way that we can get this out, this coronavirus pandemic under control without his leadership mm -hmm. since he doesn't want to address it? Exactly. Um, I think the problem here is that there's wishy-washiness and just that, that there has been no clear policy. So if what he's trying to do is mimic the Swedish approach, mm -hmm. then I think there's merit in looking at the Swedish approach, which because that's, you know, they have not locked down at any time. And of course, they've, they've, there's been a lot of controversy about their approach. Um, but you can't keep waffling around. You, you mm -hmm. have to, if, if he wanted to, to look at that, then maybe he should have looked at that in March. Um, the problem with a herd immunity approach in the U.S. is that it fundamentally, it's a very different society and health status than Sweden. The Swedish, in any case, are sort of, they kind of keep to themselves. They have sort of a living, they, they have socialized medicine. Um, they don't have as much poverty. And their overall health status is much better. The problem with America is that, you know, with greater than a third of Americans being obese and, you know, and I saw this coronavirus and obesity, diabetes, heart failure, kidney failure, these, these are things that don't match. Coronavirus mm -hmm. will target young people with obesity and lifestyle related disease. Mm -hmm. So you will kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans, because there is no socialized medicine. There's such poor health status. There's such uh, oppression, lack of access to exercise and nutrition. So you've already screwed hundreds of millions of your population and you're just going to kill them with coronavirus. So I will cycle back to that question and say, um, no, this is not the time for America to be thinking about the herd immunity approach. Absolutely not. We are now uh, 45 days away from the president. Excuse me. I believe it's 44 days away from the presidential election. <laughs> um, we have seen the former Vice President Joe Biden take the coronavirus approach more seriously, even though he's not currently the leader. He's calling for a nationwide mask mandate. 
Meanwhile, President Trump, on the other hand, is still downplaying this. Um, yesterday, when the United States reached 200,000 Americans dead from this, the president did not address it. Do you think if the president continues not to address this crisis that Americans will think it's over? Yeah, absolutely. And, and how I know the, the difference. So um, New York State has managed to keep their numbers low. And there's mm -hmm. a solitary reason for that. It's not because they're healthier. It is because there's been one message the entire time. It's because one governor has stood up every single day and he has delivered the same message. So the way that I behave and conduct myself in New York City um, is a very you know, rational approach. And funny enough, I've actually now in Toronto, so I'm seeing the Canadian approach firsthand and I'm seeing that New York State and, and Canada and Ontario is a very similar approach because it had one message. Now, the, the problem is, is with other governors and other states that, that, that are waffling in their message because of the, you know, political alignment with Trump or whatever that mm -hmm. is, is people don't have that message and people, it's human nature. You're, you're, you know, at the end of the day, human beings are sheep. And that the whole thing about a public health approach is you have to herd everybody in, in one solitary message. So if the president does not um, rope it in with a solitary message that aligns with public health specialists, uh, Americans will continue to die in, in, in the hundreds of thousands of numbers, no question. Once again, my guest is Dr. Anna Stratus. Dr. Stratus, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremiah. You're doing great work. Keep going. Thank you. In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. All right, the excellent reporters at Politico.com have provided us with what we need to know about the president's new Supreme Court justice uh, potential pick. Quote, what do you need to know about Amy Coney Barrett? Uh, she could replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the high court. According to Politico.com reporter Evan Simones, quote, The death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has given President Donald Trump the rare opportunity to nominate a third Supreme Court justice, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has pledged to hold a vote on her replacement. The president's recently updated list of possible candidates includes a number of conservative judges and legal figures who would likely tilt the court further to the right. One name that has emerged as one of the front runners has already been interviewed by Trump. A few others the president is considering, but they still have not been interviewed, end quote. Um, one thing that we do know about Miss Amy, uh, Miss Amy Coney Barrett is that she is a uh, reliable conservative. According to the article, quote, religious conservatives would have much, uh, would, excuse me, would have much to be pleased with Barrett, a devout Catholic. Barrett has stated that, quote, Life begins at conception, end quote, according to a 2013 Notre Dame magazine article. She also said that justices should not be strictly bound by Supreme Court president, precedents, a difference known as stare diseases, um, leaving open the possibility that she could potentially vote to overturn Roe v. Wade if seated on the court. Also, she is 48 years old, which means she could serve decade, which means she could serve decades on the court, end quote. In other words, she being on the court at such a young age potentially could leave, she could potentially leave her mark on a swath of cases for generations or more. 
Um, so this is reporting from, from once again, from Evan Simones at Politico.com. He goes on to say, quote, a protege of Scalia. Um, according to this article, she clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia after graduating from Notre Dame uh, University Law School. Like Scalia, Baird is a strict organalist. I believe that is or or. My apology. Let me just spell this word out. O-R-I. Originalist. Yes. Okay. And would, inf quote, enforce her best understanding of the Constitution rather than a precedent she thinks is clearly in conflict with it. End quote. Uh, that is what she wrote in, in, in a 2013 Texas Law Review article. Um, she can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Democrats. During her confirmation hearings to serve on the 7th U.S. Circuit of Court Appeals in 2017, Baird engaged to a contentious exchange with the Senate Judiciary Committee's top Democrat, Senator Dianne Feinstein. The California Democrat pressed Baird on her deeply held religious beliefs and how they could impact her jurisprudence, which led to criticism that Democrats were questioning, um, essentially, that, that Democrats' questioning was anti-Catholic. Also, her record, she has served less than three years on the Seventh Circuit after working as a law professor at Notre Dame University for nearly two decades. Um, Republicans are sort of want loyalty here rather than strictly being focused on the law because uh, the Supreme Court justices that they have put on the court usually have sort of voted more liberally. So... Uh, this would, quote, likely demand reassurances from Barrett before granting her a lifetime appointment to the court. Um, her personal life, she is she was born and raised in New Orleans. She is married to Jesse Barrett, a former United States attorney in the Northern District of Indiana. Uh, according to Trump's opinion, quote, she is very highly she is very highly respected. I can say that. Uh, but this is a woman that, that President Trump is considering nominating to the Supreme Court. We're now 44 days away from the presidential election. Vice President Joe Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden, has now advised Republican senators to vote their conscience here. Uh, so far, we have Senator Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski saying that she will not vote to fill in Supreme Court Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. We also have reports that uh, Senator Susan Collins will vote no. That is two, those are about two senators so far. I believe that is it, but uh, we will see once political pressure comes to them, once pressure comes to them to vote yes or no, we will see who says what. But what the Republicans are doing here is absolutely hypocritical, contrary to what they did in 2016 under President Barack Obama. So if they are going to have to use that precedent in 2016 saying that, no, 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 this is an election year, we're not confirming any judges, even though we are 10 months away. 44 days to the presidential election. This is what they are doing. When you talk about moral courage, this is one of those moments in American history where history will look back on this moment. Moral courage. 45 days to the presidential election. At a time when we're asked to sacrifice, we step up to do our part. On the home front. On the front lines. To lend a helping hand and hold each other up. We are resilient, vigilant, and we'll get through this because we're better together, even if we're a little farther apart. Quoting from CBS News, quote, Fort Jackson recruit found dead in, bar in barracks, fourth dead at base in just this past year. 
According to CBS News, quote, a basic combat training soldier has been found dead in the barracks at a South Carolina base. Officials at Fort Jackson in Columbia said that the 29-year-old recruit from Wisconsin was found dead on Saturday morning. The exact cause of death is under investigation. Officials said that it was not related to the coronavirus and, excuse me, or an active field training exercise. Quote, a loss of a loved one and teammate is never easy said Fort Jackson Commander Brigadier General Mil, um, Milford H. Beagle Jr. Quote, we extend our deepest sympathies to his family and friends. Now we are providing comfort and assistance. Uh, excuse me, I believe it's no, we are providing comfort and assistance to all new, all who knew him. According to the Army Times, quote, recruit from Wisconsin found dead in Fort Jackson barracks. Quote, a basic combat training off a, ba a basic combat training soldier has been found dead in his barracks at a South Carolina base. Officials at Fort Jackson in Columbia said that the 29-year-old recruit from Wisconsin was found dead on Saturday morning. The exact cause of death is right now under unclear, unclear. It is right now under investigation. As I said, officials said that it was not related to COVID-19. According to this reporting, quote, other soldiers have died at Fort Jackson this year. A 19-year-old Army National Guard soldier from Minnesota was found unresponsive at a Fort Jackson field location in January of this year, and he later died. A 29-year-old Army National Guardsman from Connecticut died in March after suffering a medical emergency during a, quote, non-strenuous activity, end quote. This is a story that we're going to continue to keep our eyes on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I really appreciate it. I will see you next Saturday. Once again, new episodes for the Jeremiah Patterson Show every Saturday and Sunday. I'll see you then. Have a fantastic weekend. Oh, well, when you're on the head into the week, have a fantastic week and I'll see you then.